Given what we've witnessed in space by our adversaries this year, including a destructive and irresponsible anti-satellite test conducted by Russia, and China's demonstration of the ability to grapple another satellite and pull it out of orbit, we cannot be too bold or aggressive in demonstrating our intent and ability to defend our assets in space. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there. We're back again for another look at the Biden administration's U.S. Space Force policy this week and why it's getting a mixed reception. Who you just heard? That was Representative Jim Cooper on Wednesday opening a hearing on the administration's defense space budget for next year. But the day before, on Tuesday, Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall spoke to a thousand-strong audience at the Space Symposium in Colorado. In that audience were many Space Force boosters, like Representative Cooper and Guardians, including General Jay Raymond, the Space Force Chief of Space Operations, a.k.a. the CSO. What they heard from the SECAF was a lot about supporting and enabling the other military branches in their missions and in joint missions. They didn't hear so much about the projection of power, the bold and aggressive that Cooper spoke about, and that left some in attendance a bit cold. A little history is needed before we proceed here. Cooper and his colleague, Representative Mike Rogers, are considered the bipartisan fathers of the Space Force. And when they started their work in 2017, the Trump administration and the Department of Defense were not exactly supportive. President Donald Trump's personal endorsement came later in 2018. Even before the U.S. Space Force was created by a 2019 act of law, which is commonly referred to as Title X, there have been two distinct and competing camps of thought about what the Space Force's future should look like, the vision. To explain the dissonance, I brought back Chris Stone and Peter Gerritsen. You heard them on last week's episode on the Space Force budget request. Both of them are space and defense think tank policy wonks and book authors and much more. And to give this discussion context, McKenna Young from the Center for Strategic and International Studies joins us to give a readout on the just-released report she co-authored called Space Threat Assessment 2022. Here's our discussion. Hello, McKenna, Peter, and Chris. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having us. Thanks very much. much. Hey, before we jump into the discussion, it would be great if everyone took a minute to introduce themselves. McKenna, as this is your first time on the podcast, you should start. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, My name is McKenna Young. I'm an associate fellow with the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. CSIS, uh, we do a policy analysis, and I focus on international collaboration and space security. And I know that this is not your first time, but Chris, could you take a moment to introduce yourself to our newer listeners, and please don't leave out that book. Sure. Well, my name is Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Research Center, or actually Center of Excellence now. And um, I work on anything related to the Space Force, U.S. Space Command, um, strategy policy type efforts. Uh, I've written on everything from nuclear thermal propulsion, maneuver warfare, missile warning, tracking, things of that sort. 
And uh, as Laura mentioned, I do I did publish a book a few years ago called Reversing the Tao uh, about credible space deterrence in the context of China. And uh, it was required reading for 2018. So it's been out a while, but it's still relevant, uh, thankfully, given all that's going on. And last but definitely not least, Peter, you also have a book. Take a moment to tell us about the book and what you're up to. Thank you so much, Laura. So I'm Peter Gerritsen. I'm a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. I have a, a, my own podcast there called Space Strategy. And I've written a book with my co-author, Dr. Namrata Goswami, called Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, how are nations starting to think about and compete for in-space resources like the moon or asteroids? And what are the security implications of that uh, emerging competition? And uh, I try to focus on the nexus of economic policy, industrial base, and national security. And now with introductions over, I want to give the floor to McKenna, because on Monday, CSIS, or the Center for Strategic and International Studies, released its annual space threat assessment, and that's the report that you co-authored. McKenna, first give us a brief introduction into what the report is, and tell us what's different from last year, and what are the trends you and the team at CSIS are seeing? Yeah, thank you so much. So this is our fifth annual edition of the Space Threat Assessment. Uh, we start every edition with a breakdown of the types of counter space weapons. So at CSIS, we break them into four categories, which include kinetic physical, which is the actual physical attack and destruction of a satellite or a ground station, uh, non-kinetic physical, which is nuclear detonations, uh, high-powered lasers or dazzling and blinding, uh, electronic counterspace weapons, which is uplink or downlink jamming or spoofing of a signal, and cyber attacks, which are you know data corruption or data interception. So we look at the top countries uh, in space, including China, Russia, India, Iran, North Korea, and a few others as well. And we categorize, you know, and we do an overview of their counter space weapons and what they're capable of. Uh, we see that Russia and China possess all of these categories um, and they're very successful in their tests. Uh, countries like India have, you know, shown that they are capable of one or two of these. Uh, and then we just monitor Iran and North Korea. We know that they're trying very hard in space uh, to be a disruptor. And so we try to see what they're up to every year and how successful they are. Uh, this year's a bit different. We've gone a bit more broad with our country over sections. And then we've focused on four specific counter space activities, uh, mostly from China and Russia to see exactly what they're doing, uh, how they're doing it. And we have one or two that aren't specifically counter space weapons, but they are kind of in a gray area that have gotten a lot of attention and wrongly been categorized as a counter space weapon. So we try to debunk what we can and give more information to the rest. And let's focus in on the on-orbit threats. And while we do this, I'd like the audience to bear in mind that not only does the Department of Defense have assets up there, but that the DOD also relies on what commercial operators provide. What threats are on orbit and what are the threat trends up there? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the on-orbit threat is the most serious and the most dangerous and also the most common. 
the kinetic physical, you know, actual attacks that destroy hardware get the most attention because we can see them. Uh, just about every other kind of attack is almost invisible and up to, you know, someone to report that they had an attack or were attacking. Uh, so the on-orbit threats are, are definitely more dangerous and we're seeing them more and more often. Uh, like you said, our militaries rely on satellites for just about everything that they do. You know, since the Gulf War, we've been relying on space for every conflict and it helps so much on the ground. Uh, and our commercial companies as well are, you know, they're launching more satellites day in and day out. We have so much that we rely on on orbit. So when, a, you know, when an adversary is able to blind sensors and disrupt our data, that's very dangerous and a huge deal. Um, corrupting the data that the satellites send down to the ground station can really change the outcome of an operation. So that's really where the danger lies. Have you seen a, a ratcheting up of, of these kinds of on-orbit threats over the past year, or has it been sort of steady? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a, a large rise in these you know, cyber and electronic categories. Uh, we've seen it already a few times in Russia where they've targeted commercial satellites like Viasat and Starlink and disrupted those services. So we're seeing it more and more. And companies and militaries are being you know, more open to when they've been attacked. Uh, so we're able to really count those a bit more and, and see how high the trend is. And we don't know about a lot of them. So if we're hearing about more, we can only imagine how many are going on that we don't know about. We've kicked off this discussion with the CSIS based threat assessment because it plugs directly into what I can only describe as the dissonance over what is actually the Space Force's raison d'etre. This is not a new clash between visions, but it's not often that it's on display. Peter, you were in Colorado Springs this week and attended the Space Symposium. I'd like you to set the table on the competing visions and explain what happened, where it happened, and why is it important? All right. So first, what I would say is that, you know, typically people will break it down into the looking down or looking out or the brown water versus blue water visions of space power. And what I would say is that the blue water vision is certainly inclusive of all the things that a looking down or, or support to the joint force vision uh, in, in vision. And I think generally speaking, it would probably agree with the, the, the same strategic priorities in the near term. But a blue water vision and you know uh, sees that part of the Space Force's role is to play a, a naval-like role in uh, protecting and extending commerce. And it foresees it, I guess it takes seriously the ambitions of both uh, NASA and our commercial sector that they intend to extend presence and to extend economic activity beyond geostationary orbit. And so the Blue Vision expects that the Space Force is going to be a part of that role, it's gonna have a role in that, it's gonna be supportive of that, and that it would message and be planning for that. And so sort of to set the tone, you know, this was the first space symposium that was, you know, uh, the people were really coming back to sort of post most of COVID anyway. And so this was a giant get together. I think there were something like eight to 10,000 people all gathered. And it was a very different complexion, I thought, than you know, when I'd gone a few years ago. There were you know, all kinds of international students. You had the Space Generation Advisory Council. You had NASA. You had so many more new space actors 
uh, many of which, you know, are uh, involved with plans to, to go to the moon, um, whether um, on landers or rovers. You know, we had a tremendous number of internationals, both of the military. You know, you had folks from Commerce and FAA, you had senior people briefing from NASA, and you had just a room filled with uh, guardians, the, probably the, the biggest gathering of, of Space Force people probably ever since its formation. And so, you know, the, the kickoff, the first major speech was by the Secretary of the Air Force, who for this brief period in time is dual-hatted as both the Secretary of the Air Force and the Secretary of the Space Force before, you know, we devolved that into its own separate and, and fully independent department. And, you know, I, I think those of us in the blue water really thought that, you know, this was the context for the uh, Secretary of the Space Force to go really big, to paint a vision, you know, of the domain, of their role on team space. So, you know, the Secretary, uh, Secretary Kendall talks a lot about, you know, one team, one fight, and this was certainly the entire space team uh, together. And so, you know, there was an opportunity there to lay out a vision of the importance of uh, space power and guardians to the totality of U.S. interests. And, uh, and, and we didn't see that. You know, we saw almost a 100% capture of Air Force parochial interests with a, a vision of space power that was entirely downward looking, entirely contextualized in the joint force. But even so, you know, I would say that the first two thirds of the speech uh, were, were on target. He started very strong, you know, that, you know, he, he said, look, there's Russia, but it's really about China, China, China. He walked us through the threats, the importance of the Space Force to the Joint Force. He talked a little bit about his operational imperatives. He unveiled the new um, defense strategy language of integrated campaigning, uh, sorry, integrated deterrence campaigning and building enduring advantage. And I have to say that having heard that, I also thought, oh, this is going to be exciting because there's so much in the blue water vision that the secretary could say on each of these, but in particular on campaigning and, and most especially in uh, building enduring advantage. But, uh, but, but that didn't really happen. You know, it was, it was very much sort of the, the small vision, uh, you know, very much, you know, not looking forward to the next 30 years, but maybe the next, you know, two or three, but even that, you know, I mean, you know, as McKenna said, you know, there are clear and present threats, and I don't think Blue Water people, you know, have any problem with the allocations that the Secretary was putting towards missile warning and communications and protection of assets. But, you know, what surprised me that was that, you know, first of all, there was nothing for the theater of U.S. Space Command. There was no parroting of their talking points about their AOR and their need to defend commerce. Uh, it did not consider, you know, what U.S. Space Command said about implied missions for planetary defense later in the conference. You know, it did not uh, make any reference to the new administration strategy on uh, ISAM, on in-space uh, servicing assembly uh, and manufacture. And, uh, and then the last part was sort of, you know, it, it took a very different track. So, you know, sort of rather than pumping the guardians up you know, for ambition and their long-term vision, it was very, very dismissive of independent options or space for space sake. And the number of times that the secretary mentioned support and an identity as support and as an enabler 
rather than, you know, as their own independent thing, really seemed as if the secretary was sort of attempting to walk it back from a fully independent service to something that would be sort of an Air Force captured asset that was, you know, going to always be in a, in a support function. I was certainly not the only one to sort of take it that way of like, you know, wow, this is very dismissive of anything else other than, than support and sort of a subordinate role. And so I thought, it, you know, overall, it, it seemed a, a missed opportunity. It, it could have been so much more strategic. It, I don't think the secretary would have needed to change anything about his operational imperatives or his investment profile. But I think that in many ways, like his earlier comment, it's just pouring more cold water on the tiny bit, maybe the 1% of guardians that are involved in thinking beyond. I, I would say that 99%, more than that probably, of guardians are fully supporting the joint force. And it's just a tiny amount that is scaling their investment to consider the future and to be sort of pouring cold water on that just did not seem like what was called for for the Secretary of Space Force in that particular context. It seemed more like something I would have expected, you know, Heather Wilson to say at an AFA conference in 2017 than to hear Frank Kendall say at the Space Symposium in 2022. Peter, you were in the room. How was the SecAF speech actually received in that room and at the conference? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say, I think there were diversity, you know, first of all, guardians are going to, you know, want to follow their leadership, you know, but certainly, you know, I, I heard comments like, you know, message received, and, you know, that was pretty tactical, not strategic, and talking to industry, they certainly, I, I think, were expecting a broader vision, maybe not the, you know, the core of the, of the incumbents who are, you know, renters on the, the current Space Force budget. But most of the change agents and disruptors, you know, are already thinking about a broader blue water vision. And generally speaking, I would say are already, you know, quite happy with the steps the Space Force, you know, has been uh, taking to open the door and really think broadly and beyond uh, about where to go. It, it was a muted reaction. I don't think it was something that, you know, the people walked away from being like, you know, wow, that that's a vision. So after that, I will say, you know, uh, General Raymond, I think, was really growing into the role, really stepping, you know, I thought his evolution of talking points was quite good. And then I think everybody was actually quite uh, impressed with uh, Pam Melroy's uh, speech out of NASA. And so that was one of one of the comments from somebody I heard was that, when uh, the military, you know, folks who that are sort of the, the center line of this conference are boring or angering people and NASA is wowing people, we've got a problem. I'd like to note that there was really only one story that illustrated what happened and the rift. And that was from Teresa Hitchens at Breaking Defense. I reached out to a couple of congressmen to see what they thought of it, and they haven't responded. Chris, you're closer to the policy center of gravity here in Washington, D.C. Is this really that big of a deal? Yeah, I, I would say it is. And the reason why is um, a lot of folks may not be aware, but there are essentially at least two visions that I've seen. And it's it's at the, from the policy sphere. And it's not it's not just the blue and the brown water, which is more of an operational side. But from the policy side, you've got 
what I call the what what they call the space security vision, and then there's the the national security vision. And the the difference between the two, although you hear the the phrases interchangeably, is if you look at the definitions of space security in like the space security index from Plowshares and other groups. They're mostly focused on securing the space domain environmentally from debris, and a lot of that tends to align with arms control uh, and other pushes to try to prevent debris generation, which totally understand that. On the other side, you've got the national security uh, piece that looks at attempting to prevent um, our critical space infrastructure, as you mentioned, you call them assets. Um, I consider them critical infrastructure from being attacked in the first place. Because the, the norms of behavior, the customary norms of behavior, as we've been seeing over the last decade plus, at least, has not been non-interference. It's been minimum reversible counter space interference with radio frequency jamming and things of that sort, lasing, illumination, stuff like that. And um, obviously demonstrations of, of kinetic weapon systems from LEO out to GEO. And I, I might add also, just from your previous discussion, a lot of the RF efforts are not just military on military, but civilian, or I'm sorry, commercial on, on military, commercial on country assets, and then but vice versa. And a lot of those were reported yearly, you know, to the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union. And some of them are accidents, but there's a lot of them that, that have been kind of a, you know, a big deal. In fact, like several years ago, there was uh, stories about Ethiopia, you know, engaging in some of this activity, which people don't necessarily think of Ethiopia, but that they, you know, there's a lot of countries that that have stuff up there and and they are quite capable. So when you look at those two different viewpoints, they have two different end states. One wants basically an environment free of debris generation, and a lot of them focus on the weapons testing versus what really creates most of the debris, which is you know non-passivation of upper stages and satellites exploding and things of that sort. And then, and of course, the weapons are just kind of like, as as McKenna said, are kind of the things that we see a lot with the missiles shooting and everything. But um, but it's a big deal because when you when you look at it from a from a support standpoint, usually the space security folks look at it from looking down, like how do you see the Earth, whether it's you know weather support, you know GPS navigation, things of that sort. And that's all great and that's all important stuff. But the, the problem is, is if you don't have a space force, which was created to have independent options, and as you know, Peter mentioned, the U.S. Space Command's area of responsibility as a combatant command is 100 kilometers and up, not below. And as a result of that, that whole argument that we don't want to have space for space sake really doesn't make any sense, especially given the Chinese and Russians' perspectives that, no, if you really want to deter actions in space, you have to engage in space. You have to hold space things at risk. And you have to have the ability to dominate escalation, um, not just control it. And that means up to kinetic. In fact, that's why we're seeing um, even the Russians demonstrating a kinetic interceptor before they rolled into Ukraine again. And with that, uh, you see uh, GPS World and others reporting that the Russians are threatening to go kinetic on all 28 plus GPS satellites in NEO, which just a few years before people would be saying wrongly, I believed that, oh, they wouldn't do that. It'd be a onesie twosie shot. And so if you see the Space Force as, as a space security enabler only and not as a national security strategic deterrence asset, you know, you have two different visions and two different end states. And so while Teresa, you know, she's she's been more of the space security side of the of the argument most in most cases, 
going back to her time with uh, CDI, which is sort of a predecessor to Secure World, uh, and her time at Unidur before she came back to the country and took her job there. Um, she's very passionate about that issue, and so she was probably surprised to hear that, given, you know, she, I don't know if she was a supporter of Space Force, but I, I got the impression she might not be. So as someone who was there when we created Space Force, the, the whole point of it was to develop the capabilities to actively defend ourselves and to engage in offensive operations to deter and prevent activities from jamming or, or destroying our assets. And so I think that's why it's a big deal. And, and a lot of people are trying to suppress that information. And for whatever reason, they just they don't want to see the Space Force grow any, anything beyond a glorified Air Force Space Command with new uniforms. And I think that would be a mistake. I've had people on both sides of the issue in my ear this past week. And one observation, and I'm being really diplomatic here, is that the central role of the Space Force is to ensure defense-based assets support all the other domains, you know, for the joint effort, joint deterrence, et cetera. You can't have joint all-domain command and control without it. And that should be the focus of the Space Force instead of what one person I spoke with said was a desire to build the Starship Enterprise to patrol anywhere from here to the moon and beyond. What do you say to that? How can you how can you counter that? Well, I would just say, yeah, you can't do JADC2 as a concept without space assets. And the other services aren't able to operate as efficiently without it. But neither can the joint force be a joint force without other capabilities to wage war or to go do other missions. Every service has support functions, just like the Air Force has support functions, the Army has support functions, but that, that, that's not their primary reason for existing. The primary reason of the Army is to conduct land operations, to seize territory or to defend territory, the Navy to do commerce patrols and things of that sort, and, and to protect our shores. The Air Force is to gain air superiority to ensure that we can hit targets, force project worldwide, move cargo, whatever we need to do, and to support the other services as needed. But neither of them would say that their primary role is to support the joint force. Their, their primary role is maritime, land, and air superiority. And as a result, you cannot have the assets to support the other terrestrial services if you have no means to protect them. And some people believe that just having a resilient architecture, meaning you're able to take the hit, is sufficient to deal with the threat. And the people who were pushing in Congress, the Space Force, said, no, that's not sufficient because just getting nailed and having the ability to see your, yourself getting shot doesn't prevent them from getting shot. And that resiliency argument is only as good as how limited the attacks are. So if you go from, if you have a limited a limited strike option where onesie, twosie satellites are jammed, like you might see in Ukraine, to what a worst case scenario would be where, you know, a multi-layered attack architecture, as China calls it, is, is using everything under the sun from lasers, high-powered microwaves, jammers, and missiles, and we have no ability to counter-escalate up the ladder, then the, the adversary will have escalation dominance, they, we will be deterred, not them. And our space assets will not be able to provide the capabilities that they need because we don't have the offensive stuff, which is, you know, kind of troubling to me that for whatever reason, people can't get beyond that. And I understand the concern that people were like, oh, we don't want to weaponize space. Well, as I may have mentioned in many other interviews, I mean, we're, we're, we're way beyond that, as, as CSIS's report shows. Um, and we've been trying to be our best behaved country as a U.S. trying to prevent us from going there. But we, we're, we're behind the power curve now, and, and seeing continual pushback on this is just very concerning to someone uh, that, that wants to see us be secured up there. 
Peter, you've written extensively about the space industrial base. Does this have ramifications for the commercial sector and, and how they plan and how they, they spend their money in R&D? Well, I want to say yes and no, you know. And in fact, I'd, I'd like to just back up before I answer that question to talk a little bit about the last one, right? So it is absolutely one of the most important roles of the Space Force to uh, support the Joint Force. But that is not its only role. You know, just like, you know, the Navy may have a role in supporting the Joint Force and the Navy, Navy may have an independent option role in, you know, a, attacking the enemy. But the Navy also has a daily presence role of supporting and protecting commerce. And at least those of us, you know, who are in the forefront of pushing for a Space Force always considered that to be a central role and one that we felt would grow in importance. And, you know, this, this comment, you know, is meant to be, you know, about building the Starship Enterprise is meant to be, you know, dismissive, um, you know, but in many ways, you know, what about that? You know, what exactly is the Space Force trying to weasel out of a role of protecting commerce as it extends to the moon? Are they saying, no, we won't be there? I mean, is that what that person who's talking to you is like, no, you know, commerce, you're on your own. You know, if it's not the joint force, don't look to us. I don't think that's what the American people are going to expect from the Space Force. I think they're going to expect that they will, that the Space Force will responsibly invest as commerce extends. Now, today, that's tiny. No one is suggesting spending a significant part of the budget. The budget that Congress allocated on top of what the Space Force requested is a mere 131 million out of you know 25, 24.5 billion to consider anything that's ex-geo at all. And I will note that there's nothing ex-geo uh, enumerated in the president's budget going forward. So you know we're talking about less than one percent of effort. Now, will it have an impact? So you know, on the one hand, you know, I think that it's it's really unfortunate because. The secretary was in a position where he could have messaged strongly at this tremendously historic movement when we've got 140 businesses as of last year that have Cislunar as part of their uh, plans who are talking to the Space Force, talking to DIU, thinking about this, involved in the, you know, the future visioning and planning, highly engaged. Um, and I think, you know, there, there, was, there was nothing in it for them you know, in his speech for them. And I think that's unfortunate because it's not like we're talking about a, a major effort. So, you know, to, to throw cold water on it, you know, is to, is to slow it down, to slow down American competitiveness and movement into things that are going to matter for building enduring advantage. On the other hand, I sort of think, you know, it, it's too late to put the genie back in the bottle in any sense. I think many guardians are already thinking about you know, not today, but the youngest folks in the audience will be in the Space Force for 30 years. And I think they're very excited about thinking about independent options. I think they're very excited about a potential long-term role in XGO. And I think that they're going to receive lots of help from an increasingly self-aware industry that's going to demand that of the Space Force. They're going to demand that Space Force takes on a more significant role in the development and encouragement of the domain. They're going to demand that as they grow towards a trillion dollar space economy that the Space Force is there. And I think Congress and the U.S. 
Space Command are all going to demand that the Space Force pay some degree of attention to the AOR of space as itself. And so in that sense, I think that while this was a missed opportunity, I think things are on rails. And I think the forces are going to be so strong over time that it's going to go the direction of the Blue Water School. And, you know, both the SECAF and CSO should think about is that history is not going to remember their tactical decisions to protect wasting assets for power projection on the ground, right? Nobody remembers all the efforts that were taken to protect cavalry and keep them going, right? But history will remember what they did to advance or constrain the movement of our society to capture the vast enduring advantage that in-space resources will provide. And, and by the way, I will add one other thing that as a former political appointee, sometimes you are kind of restrained within the policy sphere of your, your superiors at the White House. And so when the framework, the National Space Framework came out from the White House late last year, you saw a marked change in the policy lingo from deterrence and warfighting back to that enabling and support language for military space in that. And I, I knew that was obviously the, the first shot. And the fact that, that Secretary Kendall used similar language you know, makes sense from the standpoint of he's a member of the administration and he's, he has to operate within the policy framework that he's given. Whether he believes this is the right thing to do, I'm not sure, but at least wanted to give that piece. And in addition, the Chinese are already at CISLUNAR. They have COM repeaters on L2, and they clearly are working toward nuclear thermal propulsion and other sorts of stuff to expand. There have been hearings over the last five years where key members of the commercial space industry have been expecting and stating that they want to be able to have their resources and other things that they're working through with the moon and everything else protected, given the contested nature of, of space. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, just McKenna, to jump in. Wait, 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 no, no, that, that, McKenna's been patiently waiting to jump in. Let, let's, let's, you know, give the floor. Thank you. I just wanted to quickly add, you know, I think that we might see the language change and develop as the Space Force continues to you know, get fully stood up and absorb all of their functions. You know, as Peter mentioned with the budget, a lot of their budget right now is just because they're still absorbing so many space assets from other branches. You know, they aren't fully fully set up yet. And I think that hope, I'm very hopeful that in the next, you know, year or two, I know it's a slow development, but as they are, you know, more established and have more control over really the domain that has been broken up for so long, I'm hoping that the language will also, you know, continue to develop. And I'd be missing an opportunity to plug one more CSIS product. That's a, the Aerospace Security Project has a timeline, uh, you know, from the 1940s of all counter space activities that are, you know, public, unclassified. Uh, so at aerospace.csis.org slash counter space timeline, uh, you can go and see you know, all different categories of public uh, counter space activity uh, that can give, you know, kind of a broader view of this conversation and how important the Space Force is and, and, you know, how important it is to protect our assets and to have offensive capabilities because a lot of other folks do as well. And plus, I, I've said back to those folks who came up with the Star Trek comment to me, and I said, well, you know, how can you deter if you don't actually have the ability to deter, which would mean weaponry, right? In any way. So, I, I, so Peter, you want to jump in, have at it. 
I did. So, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, jump on your comment, which is like, one of the things I really liked about uh, Kendall's talk was that, you know, many times we just see too much of a wishy-wishy, don't get angry at the problem to make things work, right? And Kendall really came on strong like a, like a cold warrior. Like he really was not okay with us losing, right? I really liked that. And I really liked the fact that he was clear that it's all China, China, China. What I didn't like was that it was all China, 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 just in the Air Force scheme of maneuver context on planet Earth, that there was no China, 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 and protecting our strategic flank ex geo and thinking about their grand strategic plan to build enduring advantage you know, ex geo and cislunar. On the other hand, I'm actually surprised that people missed two comments the secretary made. Teresa's article, I thought, sort of got things wrong because she paints the defense of commerce protects cislunar folks as being like the you know, sort of the, the bad guys in terms of, you know, being offensive. And she missed these two quotes that the secretary made that I think, you know, were, were actually pretty strong in terms of saying we're going to go after counter space and space denial. The first one was, he said, our forces cannot survive and perform their missions if our adversary space-based operational support systems, especially targeting systems, are allowed to operate with impunity. The second thing he says, the transition to a resilient and robust space architecture and how to counter our potential adversaries growing space-based support to terrestrial operations and how to do this as fast as possible. I was surprised that nobody in the media picked up on that because to me that sounded very clearly that we are going offensive counter space. McKenna, you know, how does this rift and and this debate and and perhaps even, you know, a lack of complete and comprehensive coverage and and just speaking as the journalist here amongst us, I will say it might have been in uh, Teresa's uh, article to begin with, it may have been edited out for space. But McKenna, how does this look to our adversaries? Are they even paying attention to this kind of rift? I think they're paying attention to a certain point. Uh, I think especially with space, the U.S. has been a leader, you know, as we've announced our space force in almost a dozen countries worldwide have also created space forces, you know, to a certain extent. Uh, So people definitely pay attention to what the U.S. is doing in space and follow suit. Um, But I also think that countries may not listen directly to this rift. They think that we're developing our own counter space weapons. You know, it doesn't matter what the U.S. says if it's just defensive uh, countries, especially, you know, Russia, China, they're going to think that we are developing offensive counter space weapons, regardless of the messaging, I think. Um, And I think that we're seeing that a lot of other countries are focused on these defensive capabilities. Uh, France has said very publicly that they are developing counter space weapons, you know, through the lens of being defensive, but every defensive weapon is also offensive if you're the first to strike. So I think that this messaging is important and others will take note of it, but that's not going to change their view that the U.S. is going to be, you know, leading and creating weapons of some sort uh, and is capable of defending their assets and, you know, potentially attacking if necessary. And lastly, I'm going to go to you, Chris, just because, again, you're here in D.C., you know, clear messaging 
you know, you and I know that's really, really, really important. Clear, simple messaging on what the Space Force is supposed to do, how it's going to do it, when it's going to do it, you know, all that stuff. If there is any sort of advice that you could give, I feel like I've front loaded this question terribly. What should they do to clear this up? And I mean, they as in the greater they, the administration, because we know that, you know, SECAF is fronting the policy that's coming from the White House and the National Security Council. What should they do to to clear this up? Or maybe you don't even want them to clear it up. Well, if, you know, if I had their ear, I would say that it would be good to ensure that the adversaries who have written numerous times that they believe that our space infrastructure is our soft ribs and that it's very hard to defend and easy to attack. And as a result, that's why they've invested so heavily into it, which they've articulated that fine, as Peter and McKenna have mentioned um, in their in their papers, in their, their, their force posturing. But you cannot ignore their offensive developments by simply speaking to the resiliency piece and expect that to you know provide them cause of you know a pause of of fear of whatever to prevent them from acting because as as general thompson mentioned to another media source in the last few months that we as a space service have been hit pretty much every day at, on the lower threshold and so this is not a future tense issue this is a current tense issue and it's just a matter of what level of escalation is the activity going on. And right now, while they do believe that we're developing capabilities, we haven't demonstrated them. And as a result, I think that weakens our deterrence value. And as a result of that, I think using language like enable and support, while that was sort of the, the tack back in first term Obama administration timeframe, till late Obama, second term, when they started to get a little more aggressive and talk active defense with DepSecDef work and stuff. Um, and then, of course, the Trump administration. But, but I, I would just say that that enable and support is not going to provide that that check on threats to our space infrastructure. I think we need to see some demonstration and we need to work on overclassification issues. And so, you, you know, obviously you don't show everything, but you need to show enough to make them think, hmm, you know, maybe it's not so easy to attack and hard to defend. Maybe they, they have some new way of doing that. And that way, maybe they'll take a different tack and, and put their efforts in other things. Everybody, thank you so much for your time. This was a fantastic discussion. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for having us. I'll be back next week with another episode. Hey, if you like the downlink, you can subscribe to it on all the usual podcasting platforms or you can receive an alert when you follow the Downlink podcast on Twitter at, at the Downlink. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian. And to stay up to date on what's happening in the maritime domain, check out Cavus Ships. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.